0: stay with uh, Peter-Jan Markri from the University of Amsterdam uh, and we're here to talk about The Miracle of Amsterdam, your new book. Um, so can we start out with you? Just tell me a little bit about yourself. How did you, where are you from? How did you come to this?
1: Well indeed I'm Dutch but I was born in the south of the Netherlands which is actually the Catholic part of the Netherlands, contrary to the northern part of the Netherlands which is Protestant. And um, well, strangely enough, I was born there, but I never saw, I never experienced pilgrimages or saint cults or whatever. So it was only later when I started to study um, history in Amsterdam, University of Amsterdam, medieval history, that I encountered, well, saint cults and pilgrimages. And I was fascinated by that topic. Moreover, because I went traveling through Europe and at one point I uh, arrived in uh, the south of France where there is this um, famous shrine of Our Lady of Rocamadour and I was there and it was flabbergasted what was I seeing I was, saw people going on their knees on a long stairs along winding stairs along this huge rock which stands up in the landscape and well you could maybe say in in hindsight that that was my well ethnological sensation that I was actually um well i I found it so fascinating what was happening there I was wondering what are these people doing there what is so important to go on your knees on a stone stair for hundreds of meters up to this monastery over there and so um um well and then well and then I finished doing my research and uh, I started to work actually at the national records office in in Amsterdam and so I got really engaged in historical sources afterwards and uh, later on I wanted to do more research and I wanted to do more research on religious cultures and I started doing my PhD when I was 40 and then I Um, got a new job at the uh, Meertens Institute in Amsterdam which actually deals with uh, popular culture, religious popular culture and I was engaged there to execute a very vast long-term research project on pilgrimage culture. And later on I got this uh, additional position in Ethnology as a professor at the University of Amsterdam. So actually nowadays I'm combining these two positions and well, doing my job.
0: All right, <laughs> Excellent. So um, this starts with a great story, the miracle of Amsterdam. So could you, uh, would you tell me about that? What happened?
1: Well, it's it's a great story, but it's also a little bit prosaic because in those days, eh, and then we're talking about the year 1345, when actually eh, in mid-March, this miracle happened. But well, it it, it it was a miracle sort of dime a dozen because in those years or those centuries even from the thirteenth till the fifteenth century in Europe there were many such miracles as happened in Amsterdam, so to called Eucharistic miracles, miracles that happened to a to a to a host, um as Catholics say. And what actually happened in Amsterdam was one of a kind, eh, because they all look alike and they fit the well, clerical strategy, as one may say of those years to 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 have some instruments to convince people to believe in actually in the transubstantiation of the host, eh, which means that well Catholics believe that the host is being transubstantiated into real flesh and blood during the consecration in mass. And also, well, nowadays me, people doubt that, but also in medieval times, there were also people and even priests who didn't believe that this really took place in a well in a uh, uh, theological way and um, and so many of these miracles were used to convince people about the authenticity of well religious practice and the things happening there. What happened in Amsterdam actually was a little slightly different because there was in in downtown Amsterdam of those years there was a man lying on the bed he was very sick and um, people said well he needs to have the the ultimate sacraments before he is going to die. So the priest was called upon and he brought him the host and he gave him the host but the man was that thick that at one point he started to vomit and his wife was in the room and um, seeing he starting to vomit she came with a plate and she was able to catch the vomit. It's a little bit nasty story but um, it, she she did actually a very um, uh, important thing because uh, the vomit with a host is actually sacred waste and this sacred waste cannot be just thrown into the canals of Amsterdam but you have to burn it ritually and so she put it in the in the fireplace and what happened the next day all wood in the fireplace was burnt everything was burnt but there was only this one still beautiful white shining host lying among the ashes and that is that comes down to the miracle of amsterdam
0: and that's that's miraculous right that's pretty amazing
1: that's miraculous we <laughs> could say if it really happened or not we cannot say because as i told you there were hundreds of such kind of miracles happening throughout europe in those years and uh, but in amsterdam they were so well convinced that it was a miracle that they well not, not yet actually directly convinced they they called upon um, the priest of Amsterdam, and they brought his host to uh, this priest. And but miraculously, for a second time, the host returned to the original house where the man lived. And this was this happened three times. And that's also a sort of Topos-like story that when things happen three times, it's the convincing ritual that the host or what happened there should really be there and that this place was hallowed by by God and that as a consequence a chapel or a shrine should be built on that place, a place to venerate and ultimately becoming a place of pilgrimage. I don't hear you.
0: All right, there I am. Sorry, I muted my mic. All right. So this um, this isn't terribly common in the history of Amsterdam, though, right? This is um, a, a fairly unique incident in Amsterdam.
1: Well, this this kind of what I, uh, well this kind of miracles they happen through Europe over three centuries for about two hundred times. But uh, <laughs> okay. in, 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 in in the Netherlands of those years, there were approximately 20 of such kind of miracles. But it doesn't necessarily mean that every miracle evolved into a big shrine or to a long history. But uh, in the history of Amsterdam, there's actually only, well, in, in, in of those days, there's one miracle. And uh, we can only, if we jump six centuries later, we can only... Uh, encounter a new miracle happening, not with the Eucharist, but then we speak about 1945, so to say, at the end of the Second World War, when another miracle happened, or sort of miracle, and that was Mary who was appearing before an Amsterdam lady. So, actually, in Amsterdam we have two different shrines, one from the Middle Ages miracle host, and one a 20th century the apparition of mary the mary the lady of all nations as it's called
0: all right that's, that's solid um, <laughs> okay solid. so yeah that's, that's a good those are good miracles all right so tell me uh the parameters of your book so you start with this 14th century miraculous event with the host but it continues well into the 20th century right so absolutely
1: yeah, um, it's uh, it's it's it really and um, uh, well that was actually the fascinating thing about this story, yeah, that it happened in 1345 and that it has been well contested throughout the centuries, yeah, because that's already more than six, seventh century centuries ago, and it has been um, uh, continuously be contested, and there has been um, all kind of of. Um, um, changes in history, we had the reformation, we had um, um, the the, 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 the difficulty that uh, Catholicism in the Netherlands was suppressed, we had uh, a a revivalism of Protestantism and antagonism against Catholicism in the 19th century, but it really survived through all these centuries and then you really uh, can become fascinated by the tenacity of of cults of the tenacity of the sacred and that's that's something which is um yeah um embedded in the cultural memory of of people and um well often you see that 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 things disappear after the reformation but here in amsterdam there was always a lineage which was kept by catholics and um the, the 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 cult itself was it was every time was reinvented into new forms into new expressions in order to help it survive and to bring the memory of this um of this miracle um uh, to the present again. and um well, and so well, that's what we did eh? because I did not only uh, wrote this book, but I had my colleague Charles Kaspers who, took part for the uh, medieval and early modern history and so through um through the centuries we have been describing uh, how this well so so to say also contested miracle this prosaic miracle was able to mobilize um well 10,000 of people throughout europe because in the middle ages it was really a european um um uh, pilgrimage place of pilgrimage where, well, uh, nobility, royalty from all over Europe came to Amsterdam to invoke this uh, sacred state, this locus sacer, eh, this holy place in Amsterdam, and to 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 request for um, healing or yeah, all kind of support from from above, so to say, and. Um, and so, um uh, during the seventeenth century, after the reformation, it 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 really sh- well, it it became a very more local, little bit regional um, uh, uh, pilgrimage, eh? a little bit um, enshrined in its own uh, small environment, which was tolerated by the Protestants. And then uh, we see again, in the nineteenth century, when um, after hey, in the slipstream of the French Revolution, we also get our Dutch or so-called Batavian Revolution, then the suppression of the religious minorities was was stopped, and the Catholics could uh, well um, um, take their own uh, place in society again. But um, at that point, Proto- the, the, the Dutch society was was seen as so Protestant that the the Protestants actually could not allow again the Catholics to take this place fully and to have their their devotions taken up again. And so a new fight evolved actually um, harsher than ever before. And uh, the Catholics were very uh, suppressed uh, not to um, uh, practice their devotions and rituals in public. And that was um, uh, uh, a very uh, contentious um, uh, element in the whole devotion.
0: So, methodologically, um, this—I mean, this is a cultural history of an object, yeah, and an idea.
1: Well, it's more an idea because the object isn't there actually. That is also very interesting because uh, something we cannot imagine because usually you have a cult object, which uh, form a a miraculous Marian statue, uh, which which remains and, and, well, it it decays a little bit. But here we have this this host, and we have a very interesting um, 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 uh, letter from the Bishop of Utrecht, already from two years after the miracle, in 1347, in which he says that if this miracle hosts, gets dirty or, or is in decay or wilters, that the priest is allowed to, as as much as possible, to um, 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 to bless a new host again. So probably there have been hundreds of miracle hosts. Every year a new miracle host was put inside of the shrine. And so, um, yeah, is, is there an object? Yes or no, because during the Reformation uh, and the iconoclasm of the of, of 1566, the last one was demolished. So there is more this idea of the miracle, which is important in the history of, of this uh, site.
0: And then this idea then represents, you can trace the history of the relationship between Catholicism and Protestantism. Or the or the treatment of Catholicism in the Netherlands across time, via the shrine, is that fair to say?
1: That the book is about.
0: Yeah, I mean, or well, would... actually, what we try to do because there is,
1: it's not one unidirectional relationship because this, 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 this miracle or. Let's say the cultural consequences of the miracle that happened are of a political kind, of an economical kind, of a cultural kind, of a social kind. And so we try to bring in the whole network of, of, of processes which, um, which, which um, uh, were a result of this miracle into the history of Amsterdam, the history of the Netherlands, and to a certain extent in the medieval times, the history of Europe. And so I, I think we, we have a, a, a very um, multi-directional cultural history of uh, well, the consequences of this miracle which happened in 1345. So the miracle in itself is not in itself important, it is important that this idea came into being, but what was the result of that is really enormous, and from a modern perspective, you can hardly imagine uh, how 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 vast the the influence of this miracle host was to Dutch and European history.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, because miraculous devotion—I mean, that's the thing with this, with these pilgrimages, with these sites, these locations where the slippage between the, you know, the physical and the spiritual worlds kind of exist. Um, and a, it's that's a fascinating thing. Okay, so um, can, do you mind going through the book, kind of chapter by chapter, and just giving me no, a brief no. summary? All right. So uh, your introduction. I think you've covered with the miracle. Tell me about chapter one: the religious context in the Eucharist.
1: Well, I've been talking a little bit that that we try to to contextualize this um, miracle of Amsterdam, which maybe for Amsterdam is unique, which which is not unique in a European perspective, because as I told you before, that that uh, during the the thirteenth to sixteenth century there were approximately two hundred of such miracle hosts um, um, uh, miracle uh, Eucharistic miracles, I must say, in Europe. And so it fits in that pattern. And uh, well, the pattern is in itself interesting, but well, Amsterdam has its own historical development, the development out of it. And that's what uh, the first chapter is about. And this first chapter also uh, describes the, the different uh, variations to the story of the miracle, because there are many variations to to that and also it tells about the initial expansion uh, under the um, rulers of the house of uh, Burgundy. And um, yeah that's that's the development of the of the shrine in uh, medieval times which has also an important element into it because well the host didn't burn in 1345 but actually there was a and a, a second uh, miracle of Amsterdam, because when the fame of that miracle became so 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 big, people started to build. They they destroyed the house where the man was living. If he died or not, well, we we do we do not know because the sources are not so so full of that. Um, and so they built a shrine, a, a very nice uh, um, pilgrimage chapel on that on that on that site. In 1452, eh, because well, Amsterdam was full of wooden houses, a huge uh, fire burned down half of the city, including the uh, Chapel of the Miracle, the Holy Stad. And miraculously again, um, the house didn't burn again. So the the full um, uh, chapel was burned down, but in one corner uh, uh, the miracle again survived. And so this was seen as a sort of confirmation of uh, the initial miracle. And after that, the pilgrimages uh, took up speed again and became even more known throughout Europe, which led to the new rulers of the Netherlands, the Habsburg House, to, um, to uh, come and visit more often the newly built um, shrine, with this newly built big chapel. Uh, the holy stead and this this holy stead was a very uh, it, it, if you compare it to other pilgrimage places a very big beautiful um, uh, chapel uh, it was called then the eighth world miracle uh, because it was so big and so full of, of silver and gold and old kind of presents which were brought by royalty and uh, the, the simple pilgrims as well, and um, so it was one of the most important places of the whole town.
0: All right, so in chapter two in the Habsburgs favor, you talk more about the Habsburgs and their interaction with the city, with the miracle yeah. and Amsterdam itself.
1: Indeed, indeed. So I I, I was actually uh, combining, okay, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah,
0: absolutely. All right, and then we move into the third chapter when you talk about the 17th and 18th century. It's called The Miracle on the Margins. What happens yeah. there?
1: Yeah, it's called uh, On the Margins because, um, well, we all know that in uh, 1566 we had this iconoclasm uh, fury going through the low countries in which all Chapels and, and and churches were were uh, were, were uh, iconoclasts, and but unfortunately, uh, because uh, the gender issues are important also in relation to the Amsterdam miracle, there were the Amsterdam women who were so uh, strong and important that they uh, were able to defend the um, uh, Holy Stead Miracle Chapel. Uh, against the uh, people who want to iconoclast the, um, uh, the chapel. And um, and so it is only after 1578, uh, the end of the 16th century, when Amsterdam went over to Protestantism. So Catholicism was formally uh, uh, forbidden from that time on. The chapel of the Holy State was closed. Uh, it was uh, de- desecrated and um, it uh, later became a Protestant church uh, in itself. It meant that for the Catholics, they were orphaned from their own churches, and there was only one remaining aisle of Catholicism in Amsterdam left, and that was the Begijnage, and the Begijnage, which was in, well encircled uh, in a sort of enclosure of, of houses. And inside of that beginning, uh, a new priest for Amsterdam, Leonardus Marius, took his seat and tried to reorganize um, uh, Catholicism uh, after the Reformation for the remaining Catholic um, uh, population of Amsterdam. Uh, approximately 30% of the Amsterdam population remained Protestant after the Reformation. And he was able to uh, change. Two or three houses of the beggarnage into an, um, a conventicle church, a hidden church. And in this church, he was able to reestablish, as it was called, the new holy stand. So actually, the shrine uh, of the medieval host was transferred from the place which was desecrated to the beggarnage. And so, um, well, due to the Reformation in general, Catholics weren't able. Uh, or allowed to practice their devotion in public or to have pilgrimages come to Amsterdam. Uh, That was all, uh, well, so to say, illegal and uh, it became a very marginalized uh, devotion, which was actually more or less practiced by, well, Catholic inhabitants of Amsterdam and Catholics from the surrounding area. Uh, But anyhow, the Catholics were able to continue their devotion. It wasn't cut, eh? Um, and uh, one of the important elements uh, related to that was that the ritual of the procession was kept. eh? During uh, the medieval period, one of the expressions of devotions for the uh, Amsterdam miracle was an additional uh, uh, sacramental procession, a procession of the Holy Sacrament and it was the biggest of the whole town because there were more processions of course but this one was the biggest in which the whole town was united and it was always done around mid-march and the root of this uh, procession which really encircled the whole town through some streets um, was kept in the collective memory and what was important for uh, the suppressed catholics after the reformation is that they. Um, wanted to continue with the most important um, uh, veneration practice for the miracle. And that was this procession. So what they could do, they couldn't do, of course, after the revision any processions anymore, but they did it individually. Did Catholics, they walked the route, the track of the procession through town. And they did that around mid-March again, every year, uh, possibly on their bare feet because it was even more uh more well it was was better to do it in this way with more uh, veneration and uh, individually they walked um this 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 procession and this was kept on for years and and, and centuries until the 19th centuries and so in this way um the catholics um um, um they were able to Keep to this very important uh, um, miracle for their community, also because they had to reunite th- themselves again as a community, and this was a sort of, well, a sort of reference point eh, from their glorious history, from the glorious medieval times, to keep in mind and to keep that as a, well, as a point of reference for them for the future as well, and so um, this miracle. Was an instrument to keep faith, to keep uh, um, a well-connected and and um, uh, community, and to uh, well to reorganize themselves as as against well the 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 the, the dominating uh, Protestant culture.
0: One of the arguments I think you make very well that I, I really enjoy is the idea that this this is so symbolic and this becomes this important rallying point or just a point for the residents of Amsterdam to remember their Catholicism that becomes this very important, um, locus for devotion, which is Mm -hmm. kind of fascinating. And then that it's in the kind of hidden away, uh, you know, the, at the, at the beginning, doesn't seem to cause any problems. I'm curious, I was curious as I was reading and I remain curious about, um, how secret is this? If in mid-March I see someone walking barefoot around town in this known procession, right? I'm going to know, right? The authorities are going to know what is happening. So um, it seems like this is a fairly fairly public silent devotion. Yeah.
1: You're absolutely right. It wasn't secret, but you weren't allowed as a Catholic to show your symbolic of Catholicism. So you couldn't show your rosary in your hand. You couldn't. Walk with with a banner in your hand. You couldn't sing or pray uh, Catholic songs or prayers in public. So, but they couldn't stop people walking barefoot because they, were, and they couldn't stop people walking around. So, it and so there was a sort of common knowledge about what was happening, and there were many conventicle churches in Amsterdam, hidden churches, uh, and and of course initially they 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 they. Did it a little bit in secrecy, but at some point, well, people have to live together. There was a large remaining uh, Catholic community. You couldn't, you couldn't leave it outside because there were many important merchants also among them. So, as a sort of um, well, um, cohabitation, you, you you, needed Catholics and the Catholics needed the Protestants as well. So they let themselves go to a large extent. So there was this idea, also which exists about the Dutch or about Amsterdam, a high level of tolerance. So people knew that they were singing and praying and they knew that they were walking around. But what they didn't tolerate at that moment is that some of the Catholics, they wanted to go because the old medieval shrine was still standing here. There was now a Catholic, a Protestant, it was turned into a Protestant church. What they didn't allow was that during service in the Protestant church, Catholics went into it and started praying at the former place where the holy miracle was found in the, in the fireplace. And even during service of the Protestant, they tried to, Take out some little stones and relics of the place where uh, the fireplace has been, and that was a step too far. <laughs> and then Protestants just well, they 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 took action and they kicked them out again. But as long as they didn't publicly all kind of of things, then there was no problem. But within the Beginage, um that was a closed. Um, um 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 yeah what how to say was a closed uh, community of of buildings so that has has a, a large interior terrain there they could uh, little um uh, ritualities and singing and praying because that was inside a private space.
0: And yeah, as long as big... it
1: was public, then uh, it wasn't a problem.
0: Yeah, the beginning in Amsterdam is you know, this very closed, It's there's a courtyard, there are buildings that surround a courtyard and all j- windows. You can see the buildings, but all the doors are on the inside, it's this very closed kind of secret there space. There's only a
1: gate to, to which you can enter it, so it's, yeah. and they can close the gate and that's what they did then, and then they had their own practices there. Yeah
0: yeah it's such a you know this is a very important part of kind of the Dutch identity, in particularly Amsterdam kind of construction of Amsterdam is this idea of tolerance and I mean that's that's one of the pillars of Dutchness, right? Um, yeah. so um in the in uh, chapter five, you kind of move from a Catholic identity to a national. You, it's called the Silent Walk is a national symbol of identity. Would you like to comment on that for me?
1: Yeah, 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 because, well, uh, important thing is maybe because that connects to chapter four, because um, uh, had this after uh, um, the, 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 the Dutch Revolution in which all religions were equal again and they were allowed to to do everything they wanted, the Protestants had become so wary about the Catholics uh, and because about ultramontanism and, and the role of the popes and the Jesuits, Protestants saw all kinds of conspiracies around them, that now with this liberty of of religion in the Netherlands, Catholics would take over actually the Netherlands and would with the help of Jesuits and Rome uh, um, um, uh, take over the country and and wipe out Protestantism. So they they became contrary to the uh, ecumenism and the tolerance of the 17th, 18th century. In the 19th century, due to these conspiracy ideas and so on, um, there became a a, a very strong antagonism between Protestants and Catholicism. And so uh, it led even to um, a a constitutional ban on processions because Catholics all the while. Now we are free to to practice our religion again. So we start also doing uh, processions. Also a bridge too far. And then the Protestants said, No, 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 no! You may only do something inside your own churches. And they were so wary that they even put a constitutional ban on processions and its constitutional ban on processions remained even until 1983 in the Dutch constitution. So that explains a little bit the, 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 the difficulty on public rituality and the antagonism between Protestants and Catholics in the 19th century. And so and why I'm telling you this because um, at one point um, Catholics said what can we do now because we 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 have freedom of religion and but we are still such a to a certain extent scattered community throughout the Netherlands. Eh? In the south a little bit more was more uh, a, a, a majority, but in the northern parts uh, minorities. And we want to to become well uh, Catholics at large. In the Netherlands, as a, as a real community, we want to to find ourselves and to emancipate because we have been suppressed for so long, for two decades by the Protestants. We want to become full citizens again, but full citizenship and relation actually meant for them also very important to practice processions and even funeral processions, which were were not allowed, etc. And so they did something clever. They called back upon the tradition. And they knew, and now we're talking about the end of the 19th century, 1881, to lay young Catholics, they recalled that during the 17th, 18th century, people were uh, reenacting individually these medieval processions, eh? the thing we talked about, eh, that they on the bare or they just did it individually because that was allowed. And they said, well, maybe if we take, that tradition as a starting point and maybe we can turn that uh, individual rituality into a sort of collective new ritual and maybe that, that might give an impetus and a, maybe an, an incentive to, um, to, to the importance and to the revival of the devotion to the uh, um, miracle of Amsterdam. And so what they did, they started initially with four, five, six, seven, eight, nine people. Started walking again in a little group, this same route of the medieval procession. And then, at some point, people found that a splendid idea, and they were they were motivated by it. It was also a time in which the emancipation of Catholics took up speed a bit again, and that they really found it important to 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 try to re, to to do a an, 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 an revival of the medieval devotion. So everywhere in the country, people were thinking about how can we take up this this Marian devotion from Halo again, because it was, that was that was also that also disappeared during the Reformation. And so in this hill in this whole Uh, dynamics of of, uh, emancipatory behavior of the Catholics in the second half of the the 19th century. This was a sort of, yeah, at some point um, people thought, well, maybe in the capital of the Netherlands, it's symbolically so important to have this devotion, which was known throughout Europe in the Middle Ages, to revive it again and to Use it as an instrument for our further emancipation and about uniting Dutch, um, uh, the, the the Dutch Catholica, the, the Dutch Catholics, and so within two decades from a group of four people, it it, it grew into a national movement of ten thousand of people who came to Amsterdam to walk all collectively together this uh, um, route of the former processions but do it all because eh, we had this ban on processions so they had to do it quiet they had to do it without any symbolic any visual symbolics so uh, and they had to do it during the night because they were still initially afraid if they would do, do this during the day that it would offend the Protestants and that maybe with some police force uh, it might be um, um, stopped. And so slowly from eighty eighty one till the beginning of the 1900s, it grew slowly from a very small movement into a huge movement. And at some point uh, 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 even 90,000 people, 90,000 Catholics came from all over the Netherlands in the night. So they walked from 12 o'clock at night till six o'clock in the morning with extra trains, with buses and so on. It was a huge operation to bring all these people from one night from all over the country to Amsterdam. And and so yeah, because you asked me what's the national and it's actually this 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 became the only real national pilgrimage for the Dutch Catholics at large and it was in the capital, but it was also done in a Dutch way, because it was not only a, a, a devotional ritual, but it was actually also a movement of protest, because um, they walked there, but they did it silently, and this silent walking was actually also this implicit protest protest of um, the idea that we cannot have any processions because there is this constitutional ban, and we are still secondary citizens of the Netherlands, and so it grew uh, and became, well, of course, very well known as a sort of, um, 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 well, as a as a devotional movement, but also as an uh, as a movement of protest. <clears throat>
0: So, can you tell me what happens during the war? Is there um, a, a, are there these processions during World War
1: II? Well, during the war, uh, initially, the first the, uh, the first war year in 1941, there was there was no problem, but um, uh, the rest of the war until uh, 1945 the Germans uh, uh, did not allow to to walk uh, um, um, this collective um, uh, silent walk as it is called. Um, Initially people did it in the old-fashioned way to do it individually uh, in pairs or with with, with small groups but uh, later on it became more and more dangerous to to, to do it in larger groups, but there were still some people who, until the end of the war, tried to not to lose this this tradition, eh? because it has been always been practiced, sometimes with very little quantities. Eh? Also, eh, beginning of the 19th century, were only a few Catholics who remembered it to do it, and and so, and also people said this 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 tradition of every year doing. The remembrance of the procession and uh, in honor of the of the miracle, we should keep it. So during the war, there was also some people who really uh, kept um, the line uh, unbroken.
0: Important. Oh. No, go ahead, please.
1: Well, maybe important to say is that um, this silent walk, uh, as it as it was called, um, was actually a practice of man. And um, it was only that in uh, in the in the in the 1960s that women were officially allowed uh, to participate, and that has to do is also uh, a, a famed or an infamed element of uh, of Amsterdam culture, is that already in the 19th century, when this silent walk started, it had to follow the 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 course of the medieval procession. But the medieval procession, this, this, this these the streets went through the red light district of Amsterdam, which is now the red light district, but also in the 19th century it was. And then it was regarded as unthinkable that women would go during the night, eh, because it was a nightly uh, silent walk, that they would well, uh, uh, participate in such a procession going through the red light district. And so, um, uh, which doesn't imply that there, that there weren't any women because there were many well many but there're always some dozens of women who wanted to go along and uh, just uh, just disobey the orders of 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 the priest and the and the organizers and um and it's only until the beginning of the 1950s that there is specific Uh, silent walk for women was um, instituted which didn't start at night but which start early in the morning so for the women they could start at uh, 7 o'clock on Sunday morning so walk in daylight on the quiet Sunday morning through these uh, streets and it's only as I said in the 1960s that it was allowed by the organizers after the Cultural Revolution of course um, to have jointly do this silent walk.
0: that's such a great uh, i love that i love that part of this uh this whole story with the idea that it, this procession goes through davale now right like right through the yeah. red light district <laughs>
1: have you seen it once
0: no i've never seen the per, uh the procession okay. i'm very excited i'm gonna watch for it next year um so no, I, would I, bring...
1: I, I deliberately do not use the word procession because it's okay. so because it, it 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 could not be a procession, and uh, it it was not allowed to be a procession. So then the word the used, the word procession, is 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 confusing. So to say, that's so that's why I use the word silent walk. And I know that in in English it's it's ambiguous the word, but in Dutch when you use procession, you always think about a religious procession, which it.
0: Yeah. I mean, in a Catholic context, even in English, that makes sense. Right. A procession is a procession is an event in a way yeah. that a walk, you know, yeah. Is. Yeah. there's yeah. fanfare to procession. Yeah. Um. So actually, this takes us well into Chapter six, Revolution and the Reinvention of Tradition, starting in uh, 1960 to 2015. So uh, tell me what happens in Chapter six. Well, in chapter
1: six, then, uh, of course, the long 1960s, what what do we all know about the long 1960s? We have a cultural revolution, uh, B generation, uh, um, uh, but also there is a religious revolution. So uh, the religious institutions are debated, uh, are standing under pressure, and uh, um, uh, especially that counts also for the Catholic Church, and more in particular, in the Netherlands, because the Netherlands always were very devout Catholics, because um, they were very attached to Rome and they were very ultramontane, as it is called, uh, connected to the policy of Rome. But as deep devout as they were before the 1960s, after the religious and cultural revolution of those years, they became the most um 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 liberal and the 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 decay of Catholicism was has become one of the strongest in the Netherlands and and also the the the, the new ideas of how to practice Catholicism also uh, uh, made Rome very wary about the, the, the new Dutch catechism and so on they were very uh was very infamous and um yeah whatever so um but that also uh, meant that, that um, um, the institutional church uh, decayed very much, but also all practices and um, devotions connected to it. Uh, the Second Vatican Council also had a sort of yeah, depreciating... Um, 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 attitude towards devotions which were called medieval and whatever and that was really very much expressed also in the dutch media and and mediated and even catholic priests they thought they they professed that it was all from another age and era and that we shouldn't do that anymore so that that affected very much also the um, uh, silent walk, which diminished from in the late 1950s from 90,000 people a year to six, seven thousand a year uh, in uh, the beginning of the 1970s, and so um, it became, um, uh, yeah, a, 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 a sort of waning devotion, and everyone in those years that, well, maybe another 10, 20 years, but then we're done with the silent walk. But yeah, miraculously, one could say, uh, it's still here and still to go, and we still have a yearly, what shall we say, four or 5,000 people who participate in it. It's still a little bit diminishing, so we still have to see, but well, it has overcome many, many, uh, contestations, many periods of decay or suppression and so on. So um, there is still this private organization, the Society of the Silent Walk, as it is called, and they still organize every year um, uh, this silent walk. And maybe ironically, um, one of the one of the major uh, threats is maybe uh, the popularity of Amsterdam as a tourist destination. Because, well, um, we know all these stories about the pressure of over-tourism and so on. But nowadays, uh, even at night, at midnight, after 12 o'clock, when you go to the streets uh, in mid-March, which is not a very, very, well, touristic or warm season, it's often quite wet and cold and so on. But then the streets at night are filled, and these small medieval streets, um they, they they are filled with people tourists walking with their with their luggage uh, they are drinking standing in groups um, um smoking weed or whatever and and it's often practically very difficult for the silent procession to pass by and also because they are not alone anymore in the streets in their, well, meditative isolation, so to say, it, the whole experience of doing um, the, the silent walk, being confronted so directly with people who are drinking and shouting and yelling because they do not understand what these uh, mute, silent walking people doing. they a little bit old-fashionedly dressed and so on. So there is this, 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 um, this, 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 well, culture, well, it's not, well, maybe you could say a sort of small culture war between tourists, tour, the, the excesses of tourism and the still devote people who are, well, who find each other at midnight in these uh, red light area districts of Amsterdam. And so last year, for the first time, the organization was obliged to set in, well, um, um, people who. They care for the order, but they also uh, there was an, um, an, a, 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 a spontaneous initiative from the bar owners of those streets. And they said, well, we have respect for this tradition. We see the difficulty about combining tourism and, and this kind of uh, devote rituality. And the bar owners had a sort of, um, well, um, uh, or how to say, sort of policing task and they hire people to keep people at distance uh, people who are frequenting the bar to keep them inside or not too much on the street and so maybe well, this is a little counterweight against the overtourism Amsterdam is confronted with nowadays so what the future will bring, we'll we don't know. I don't have a glass bulb, so uh, I, c- I cannot say, but this is the present-day situation. What a, uh,
0: what, that would be ironic, right, though, if we had a this uh, procession that's lasted 650 years, survived the, uh, the excesses of the Reformation only to be killed by drunken bro-tourists in Amsterdam in the 21st century. That, that doesn't bear thinking.
1: It's interesting because also um, UNESCO wants to propagate uh, um, uh, uh, world cultural heritage, but also intangible cultural heritage. And by trying to protect intangible cultural heritage, because I advised also the Society of the Silent March, Please do not go for an accreditation for the UNESCO Intangible Cultural Heritage National List because if you get on it, it gets worse. And well, that's that's what you see what's happening in Venice and in this Venice of the North is happening as well. That 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 well, where cherished for is actually also being um, well, um, yeah, brought down by the people who want want to, to see all these wonders.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, the The problem, I mean, the tourism is just it, it's destructive. Um, but at the same time, uh, I, I mean, I, I understand why the world wants to see Amsterdam, right? It's a great yeah, setting.
1: absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, why we want to see Venice? <laughs> yes,
0: yeah, I'm also a nice place. Okay, so uh, how do you end this book? Chapter seven: conflict or consensus? How How do we well, conclude? I'll-
1: well it's 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 a book over such a long period with so many so many threads in it connecting economy, social life, politics, uh, whatever is connected to this miracle and it's it's difficult to 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 well to oversee it also we want to have a sort of final uh wrapping up and uh, also because there has been so much contest contestation and um and uh, we wanted to 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 make clear that actually it's nowadays uh, well it's more about consensus than uh, than about contestation and um well maybe hey, if we talk about tourism that that's all also- also a contestative element but if we look at the, the rituality itself we see that in the last decades and uh, maybe also a little bit ironically that they have been trying to involve Protestants but also Jews but also uh, non-believers uh, or New Age people to connect to uh, the Silent Walk because the Silent Walk actually is not so much a Catholic ritual, but it's a meditative ritual in silence to which everyone can connect uh, quite easily. And so there have been some um, ecumenism or ecumenistic um, 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 silent walks in the in the past year. And um, and 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 so th- well, it it it, it actually. Uh, brings out it, it. It advocates now consensus and and tolerance and um, as religious people um, um, going walking together towards the future. And maybe if we have time, then there is another important element to uh, connected to the silent walk, because uh, what well, we have been talking about is centuries or century old uh, history and the necessity to reinvent it every time there's also there were also very important reinventions in in another way since the second world war because um this idea of walking in silence uh, without any objects without any symbolic is 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 a very um um, um strong ritual and after the second world war in the uh, religiously then still so divided Dutch society, yeah, between Protestants and Catholics, they were looking for what could be a proper ritual to commemorate the victims of the Second World War. And uh, it was difficult to find something in which both parties could could find themselves together. And then one of the uh, main men of the society of the Silent Walk. He was asked in this committee to, to, to try to, to make something uh, up. And he he proposed to do also a silent walk, um, still a tocht, uh, for the commemoration of the victims of the uh, Second World War. And actually inspired on this centuries-old ritual, uh, a new national ritual for. Combined Protestants, all all denominations could be uh, included in that. A new ritual was invented, and which is now yearly, every day on the fourth of May, May, when we commemorate our victims of the World War. In every municipality of Amsterdam, a still a the silent walk again is held to, um, uh, to to commemorate the victims, and it not only ended with. With that ritual, because later on, at the end of the 20th century, there was again a sort of silent walk as a new uh, reinvention was put on the ritual map, and that was because, um, as we have seen elsewhere in Europe, that the uh, commemoration of individual victims in society, due to um, 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 traffic victims, hey, young people who died or after traumatic events or after big disasters, there's also a need to commemorate the victims. And in the Netherlands specifically in the 1990s, also uh, a a silent walk was uh, different from the Catholic one, so to say. But actually, when you look at them, they they are not so very different, but the intention is different, the background is different. Uh, uh, silent walks are now uh, part of the ritual repertoire of the Netherlands after traumatic death and uh, the commemoration of victims. And so, uh, well, during the year at least, well, dozens of stille tochten of such silent walks for after traumatic death are held throughout the Netherlands. And we have exported this product because you find them also now in other countries.
0: That's fascinating! Wow, that's really cool. Uh, the connection of Remembrance Day and the Silent Walk, of course, right? And yeah, uh, yeah, oh, that makes That's fantastic. Um, so interesting. All right. So I've taken up a whole bunch of your time here. We've been talking for over an hour. Uh, but is there anything else you wanna you wanna say? Is there anything that we need to know? Is there something we haven't covered?
1: Well, you had a list of of questions, but I think yeah. you were. Yeah. So no,
0: I think we've gotten through it pretty much.
1: Yeah. Um,
0: yeah. We've touched on everything I wanted to talk about. Um,
1: project you had yet in, somewhere. Oh, yeah. But...
0: No, I would love to hear that. What are you doing next? Oh. So, yeah, what are you working on now?
1: What I'm working on now? Well, well, this book is already, uh, well, It's it's now just published in English, but my research has been done for some years. But now now I'm actually working at something. Well, it has some connection, but it's on alternative healing practices, and it's a little bit t- taboo subject. And it's not because I'm 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 doing it myself, because by I I encountered here in Amsterdam, even even among well well-educated people, among friends of myself during the last year, that people are increasingly pr- doing alternative healing practices. And we have a very active anti-quack movement. They are very strong and very activist. And and so people do not want to talk about it a little bit. It's a little bit taboo in the Netherlands. And, and, and so, and I thought, well, nobody is touching this subject, not from a medical point of view, because that's, that's not my field, of course, but from a cultural point of view. So I want to know and how and how they do it and what kind of practices there are. So I started a, 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 a research project on alternative healing. I have many interns here, I've just written a book in Dutch about uh, sort of, for the wider audience, how to look from a cultural perspective to uh, alternative healing practices. It resulted directly that the anti-crack movement got down on my neck and said, what the heck is a professor from the university doing with uh, alternative healing because they well when they see the word only they they they, they react and they don't see that it is not from a, that I'm not advocating it I'm not rejecting it I'm just looking from a cultural perspective to to that thing well that's that one thing another thing is that I'm starting up a well it's not a project but there is a need for a new, handbook for students on ethnology my field so to say european ethnology ethnology and so uh, this is another uh, book what i'm starting to write now
0: Okay, just a couple small projects then. <laughs> no problem. You know, that's so yeah. funny. And we'll, we'll edit this out of the conversation because i would be embarrassed. I go to a, an acupuncturist and I get a myofacial release. And, you know, I have a PhD. Like, it's ridiculous. And I know it doesn't help, but I just feel better. I don't know. I I had a student this semester who wrote about, like, yeah. the divine feminine and how, like, be, there's this co-opting of, like, feminine ideals and Wicca and it's all about weight loss it's all yeah. very it's a bizarre kind of unholy marriage there like they think that really affects women in particular that's so cool yeah, all right it,
1: so- it, 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 the important thing is that it's for so many people it works and 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 the anti-quake movement is so pushy because as soon as someone deals with it they they try to put him or her down and 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 even me there were articles in the newspapers well um, uh, uh, ac- accusing me of all kind of things it was it's so stupid but on the other hand p- there are so many aspects which which have, have have a good outcome so you shouldn't be so so mono mono, mono, mono man looking at healing practices as they do so
0: I mean, there is another gendered issue there that, right? Like, we accept anything that you can prove that white guys in lab coats can prove is truth, and anything else, you know, that like a thousand years of people doing it unofficially—that's not provable. That's not scientific method. It's a—it's interesting.
1: If that's a gender issue, I don't know. I think it's—it's it's more of a the, the sort of West, not where non-West uh, position. Yeah. More. Yeah
0: and it's about authority yeah. and regulation and legalism yeah. and I'm I'm definitely inclined to look at everything yeah. from a gendered perspective but a yeah, good point. All right. Yeah. Um so let's let me finish up here officially we'll cut back here. So uh thank you very much the book is the Miracle of Amsterdam biography of a contested devotion uh out in English from the University of Notre Dame Press and from Notre Dame Indiana. Uh, I believe it's available now or soon. Absolutely, it's a really enjoyable read. Uh, as well as everything else, it's well researched. It's a an excellent book. It's a really fun to read. I enjoyed it immensely.
1: Thank you. I-